man's children. We have never been enslaved to anyone. And Jesus probably had a, some kind of grand going, are you kidding me? Y'all have rebelled against me your whole lives as my covenant people. This has been your consistent practice. But they say we have never been enslaved. The next one is they, in verse 37, they challenge his claim that they are not like Abraham. And so they, they are clinging to Abraham, making a big deal about it. And Jesus tells them, you're not like Abraham. Abraham welcomed me, received me. And then last week as well, in verse 41, um, they challenge the legitimacy of his birth, suggesting that he was born in immorality in John eight forty-one. So the challenge will continue today, and they will, they will make it much more personal and much more demonic, much more evil in what they say. They will call him a Samaritan. They will accuse him of having a demon. Now, when you think about this, the eternal Son of God, they will accuse him of being a Samaritan. They will accuse him of having a demon, and then they will challenge his claim of being greater than Abraham. Why so much attack? Well, so much attack for this reason. This is a spiritual war that we are in. It is a battle for truth. I, I, I put this a Friday maybe. I'm not, I can't remember when I put this on there. Jesus standing before Pilate is one of the most significant things that should frame our faith. Jesus tells Pilate, the world asks this question all the time. What is truth? The world asks that question. We as Christians should not be asking that question. We know what the truth is, and the truth is a person. And this person has spoken the truth, and it has come to us in the Scripture. So the world asks the question, what is truth? And Jesus tells Pilate, I have come to bear testimony. My kingdom is about the truth. That's what I have come to give. And so for you and I, we need to be reminded... uh, of the importance of knowing the truth in a world that battles against the truth. So as long as Satan is moving, he's going to battle God. He's going to move and he's going to influence. Our sinful nature is going to battle against God. It doesn't want to have anything to do with them. And so, so as John 8 ends, we see this morning that this continued attack comes is because those who are in error don't like the light. They don't like the truth. The light shines, Jesus said, in the darkness. And people run away who love the darkness, run away from the light. And so the truth is always going to be attacked. And Christianity, especially more than any other faith, um, will, will do that because of the narrow, narrow claims that are connected to our faith. Lies hate the truth. Darkness hates the light. Confusion hates truthful clarity and by the end today they will have enough of jesus and they will pick up stones literally in the temple to kill him and that's just that's i i I say that sentence and that's a staggering sentence their long awaited awaited messiah is in front of them and they want to stone him to death they've had enough of what he has to say they are not interested anymore in what he's going to say so Two things, last things by way of introduction before we begin to walk through the text. Two things to do with our persecutors, if we are ever persecuted. Two things to always do with persecutors, what we learn from Jesus here. 
share the truth. Speak the truth. He's telling the truth, speaking the truth to those who are persecuting him. And secondly, invite them to believe. Yeah, but they don't want to believe. That's all right. Invite them to believe. God's patience astounds me. With the mocking of his name and the glory of Christ that takes place in our world today, all over the world today, in all kinds of different ways, his patience with the world is incredibly astounding. All right, so let's walk through this and let's see how John 8 ends uh, next week. Don't miss next week. Don't ever miss a week. But John 8, John 9 next week is this encounter where he heals this blind man and it is just an amazing story of what he does. So as he finishes up this, we see this beauty next week of the contrasting work of Christ and the goodness of Christ. So let's look first of all this morning. Let's talk about the pettiness of false disciples. So we just spent three weeks talking about the religious leaders. They were false disciples, not true disciples. And let's talk about the pettiness of false disciples. So Luke 48. So the Jews answered him, the religious leaders answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? Now this is what's happening here. It happens all the time. If you're married, you probably participated in this. When you're losing an argument, you start name-calling. And they're losing the argument. It's over with. They've been battling word for word with Jesus. It's over with. He's proved they're not like Abraham. He proves that they're not like um, they claim God is their father. He's proved this. And now they're like, get angry. And so they just, oh, well, uh, it's like playground kids. Well, well, you're a Samaritan. And it's just a joke. It's a ludicrous claim. They're losing the argument and losing the battle. And so now it gets to a place of incredible pettiness. They want to continue to remain in the discussion But the next phase now is personal insults to Christ. And they launch an attack from a new angle, this name-calling. And the religious leaders, no doubt, at this moment have become very, very emotional. And if this has ever happened to you, when you get really emotional and angry, rational thinking sometimes just goes out the door and, and the mouth gets loose and actions and things of this nature. And this is where they are. They just, they're so angry that rational thinking has gone out the window. And when emotion runs high, clear-headedness often is lost. And they're just undone at this point in time. There's not really anything else that they can do. He He has put them in the corner, and they can't really say anything back. And so now it's pointing fingers and name calling. They couldn't handle the content. Couldn't handle it anymore. Couldn't handle the truth. So they attack the character of Jesus. Any challenge on Jesus, by the way, you lose. He wins every single time. But for those who obey his word and for those who love him can be assured of the hope of eternal life. There's life found in submitting to Christ. There is eternal separation found in fighting him for a lifetime. And again, I just have to remind us, these are men steeped in study of the Old Testament. 
These are not Darwinists. These are not evolutionists. These are religious leaders who are now seeing the one they've studied their whole lives and they can't see who he is. Here's what they do. Because they don't love the truth, they react instead of repenting. If they loved the truth, they would have repented. They would have recognized who was in front of them. And again, it's kind of elementary school playground insults. You are a Samaritan. Take that. They probably looked at each other and thought, well, we scored a point. We've been trying to score points, and they don't. Listen, folks. Jesus will always challenge He will challenge those inside the church. He will challenge those outside of the church as well. And his challenging is not so that he wins a point. His challenge is that he wins souls. That's what he's going after. He is going after their soul. He's not sharing these things with them to make a point. He's sharing this with them because they are about to miss the point. And the point is Christ And so he will do that. And we will either submit or we will harden our heart as they are continuing to do here. And for 2,000 years, people have been stepping into the stadium or a ring to fight Jesus, to prove him wrong, to prove that it's not the truth. And people still today go toe-to-toe with the sovereign Lord. And after 2,000 years of effort, guess what? Christianity stands just as strong as it did on the day of the resurrection. It has lasted. It will continue to last. As a matter of fact, I will make this statement and stand behind it. I think it's harder today to disprove Christianity than it was early on. And the reason is, is we have 2,000 years worth of testimony. 2,000 years worth of lives transformed. 2,000 years worth of archaeological evidence that it's continuing really in our day and time. Giving. The Bible doesn't need proving, by the way. It stands by itself. But there are things that are being discovered today that give evidence to back up what we have believed to be true about the Scripture for a long time. And so... They couldn't disprove it back then. They tried by lies. They could not do so. And here we are 2,000 years later, and Christianity stands amidst huge attacks, particularly in the last two to 300 years in the West, against our faith. So they go two places in their pettiness. One, you're a Samaritan. This was for the one who says, I am the truth, follow my words, and they will set you free. This was a huge, huge thing to say to Jesus. Here's why. This was a, both a religious and a racial attack toward Christ. The Samaritans' religion was a mixture of Old Testament and false gods together. The Samaritans' ethnicity was a mixture of Jewish and Gentile heritage. Most Jews could not stand the Samaritans, and avoided their land and avoided talking with them, dealing with them at all cost. By the way, I'll just say this. They don't believe what they've just said. They wouldn't have spent three years battling a Samaritan false teacher. They would not have done so. 
So this is just an attack because they want to try to win and they cannot win in their battle with Christ. They don't believe he's a Samaritan. Now this might have been connected to a rumor about Mary's pregnancy, but ultimately, again, they would not have spent three years battling a Samaritan false teacher. They would just said, ignore him. But they can't do that because he is the son of God. He is the son of man. He is the one who had come in the flesh to reveal the Father to us. So they go to this personal insult of you are Samaritan. Then they go, and we'll talk more about this next point. They go to a demonic charge against Christ, and they say, you have a demon. And I think it's important to notice here that Jesus does not get emotionally charged at the attacks. He doesn't do so. He just stays on point with them in regard to the truth. And by the way, skeptics rarely want proof. They just want to put down our faith. Because if you've ever talked to someone, and you'll say, hey, listen, if I could, if I could show you, and let's talk and dialogue about this, would you be open to consider the claims of Jesus and Christianity? And most skeptics that you will find aren't interested in what you have to say because they're not interested in the truth. They are interested most often in putting down our faith. And I'll just say this as well before we move to the next point. Be careful of those who have great religious arrogance when they say, are we right in saying this? It's dangerous to not ever approach truth with humility. And so here they are like, are we not right saying to Jesus who is right and righteous and holy? Never once Jesus did Jesus go around saying, hey, I'm right. I'm right, I'm right, I'm right in everything that I'm saying. He just spoke the truth. He made his case to the people. He simply claimed what he knew from the Father, and he did so. And I believe who we lean on to says a lot about our lives and where we stake our case and where we stake our life. Jesus just settled on who the Father is, who he knew the Father to be. They are settling on self. Are we not right? So let's go to the second point this morning. Let's talk about the dishonoring of the Father and the dishonoring of Jesus. So Jesus answers now their claim about not the Samaritan. He just ignores it. He's not going to go there with them. But he's going to deal with them about the demon. So look at 49. So Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but here's what marks my life. I honor my Father... And you, by rejecting me, are dishonoring the Father, and you're also dishonoring me. So watch what Jesus does here. They they say, listen, you have a demon. And Jesus says, no, I don't have a demon. This is what drives my life. I live to honor my Father. So he sticks with the truth. He's not offended. He doesn't get emotional in this moment. He is sharing with them the truth that can change and transform their life. So he's going to give a contrast. And here's the contrast. I honor my father. You dishonor me. So he contrasts his life. 
that aims to honor the Father, to glorify the Father in every aspect of his life, the things he says and the things he does, they, on the other hand, are completely opposite. Their aim is to bring dishonor to Jesus. That's why they call him a Samaritan. That's why they say, you have a demon. And Jesus just states here, I honor my Father. And by the way, men, if I had a demon, guess what the last thing I would be about is casting out demons. And I've been going everywhere casting out demons why would a demon want to cast out other demons so even your argument there doesn't hold up there all i speak about is the honor of my father for it's why i live that he would get the great honor from my life men it's clear i don't have a demon i'm not demon possessed i've been going around doing good is that the action of a demon-possessed person to cast out demons or to do good to people, to give sight to the blind, to make the lame walk, to cure lepers. The deaf could hear. The dead were raised to life to live again. That's not the work of Satan. And so Jesus' great passion to honor the Father in great humility disproves that demons were doing this work. So he He deals with what they say. You have a demon. And he's like, I don't. And my life is marked by this. Here's why. I aim to honor my Father. Look at my life. Everything about my life is God-like. This is what God would do. What I've been doing and saying is what God would do in your midst. And so Jesus contrasting, saying this is what I'm like, and then says to them, but you dishonor me. By calling him a demon, they are dishonoring not only Jesus, but also the Father who sent them. And so they are attempting again to dishonor and discredit Jesus, which is a serious and grave effort that some people feel they need to undertake. God takes the aim of dishonoring the Son very serious. And the more one intentionally dishonors the Son, And mocks the Son, the harder that life and the harder the heart in that life becomes. So Jesus has been talking about this since John chapter 5. John 5, 22, it says this, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. And everyone who mocks religious leaders and people today the Father and mocks the Son. They honor the one who is their creator. They dishonor the one who is their judge. They dishonor the one who has the name above all names. And they dishonor the one who has been sent to give them life. And I'll say this. He becomes the ultimate victor. He is already the ultimate victor in spite of all the mocking. So the world can mock Psalm who says the nations rage but the son gets the honor so even in the most extreme mocking of all time one cannot gain victory against Christ and so they call him a demon they call him a Samaritan and as they do so they dishonor the father and they dishonor Jesus so Jesus takes it a step further to give evidence as to why he doesn't have a demon let's look at the third thing I want to give evidence according to Christ's words here that he is holy God and not demonic. 
So as they claim he has a demon, Jesus says the evidence is actually contrary. So look at 50 and 51. He says, listen, here's more evidence about my life. I didn't come here to seek my own glory. But there is one, and you've got to notice the capitalization there that's there in the Greek. There is one who seeks it. What seeking? We've got to put all this together. I didn't come, Jesus says, to seek my own glory, but there is one who seeks my own glory. He's about my glory. There is one who is about that. And he, who's about my glory, he's the ultimate judge. Truly, truly, I'm establishing something firm, true, that you must believe in. If you will keep my word, you will never see death. Now here's the problem. They only ever saw Jesus, not with spiritual eyes, but with more physical eyes. And they don't get the point of what he's saying here. And the point of what he's saying here is pretty incredible. So let's look at this. So here's Jesus giving more evidence as to why he doesn't have a demon. And here's why. Okay, men, you've claimed Abraham. I've told you how you're not like Abraham. You've claimed God as your father. I've shown you that God is not your father. Satan is your father. You listen to Satan. The father sent me. Your rejection of me proves that you don't know the father. You don't know him because of this reality. And so the text says here, according to Jesus, letting us know what does Satan desire to do? He desires to exalt himself. Satan is all about himself. He aims to mock and belittle God. Jesus is so father-exalting in his life. And so Jesus says, listen, I didn't come here to seek my own glory, but there is one who honors me in such a way, and this one who honors me in such a way is the one that you're claiming to know as God. So look at 50, the first part of 50 again. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it. You see, it is the glory of His humility that is so amazing to see. For a little while, he set aside, not to become less than God, but he set aside some things that Philippians 2 talks about. The majesty of who he is. And for a while, he set those aside. And he was here. And he says, men, I'm not here seeking my own glory. I'm here seeking the Father's glory. But I need you to know this. His big aim is my glory. The Father's aim is that I would get the glory for He sent me here to reveal Him and He sent me here on mission to die for the world. The very heart of the incarnation was that Christ came to bring the Father glory by doing what the Father wanted for Him. Jesus left a place where the angels could not stop saying, Holy, holy, holy. Is who he is to come to a place like this to deal with leaders like he's dealing with in John 8. And he is still here offering salvation to people in the room today, to people in the world today. And Jesus just says this listen, men, this Father, this God that you claim to be so intimate and you know him, I want you to know this. He's all about my glory. He's about my glory. So you don't know him. 
So Jesus again saying, why would the Father in heaven, you call me a demon-possessed man, but the Father who's holy and righteous, He's about me. He's about honoring me and and that, that my glory would be seen in your midst. And so the last thing that the Father would be about is what? Honoring Satan, honoring the demonic. And so Jesus making his case, saying this, listen, the Father seeks the Son's glory. Secondly, and those who reject the Son's glory will be judged by the Father who sent the Son to reveal who he is. So he says, listen, men, you need to understand. I seek his glory. He sent me. You say I have a demon. The father you claim to know is going to judge you and how you are responding to me and dishonoring me. There are two things I want to point out here when it says that he is the judge. Speaking of the father in this context. And the first one is simply this is that the Father will judge all those who reject Jesus. He will. But secondly, I think the meaning is also here that the Father judges rightly everything about the life of Christ. And everything about the life of Christ is affirmed by the Father. He affirmed the glory of Christ. Don't miss the heart of this. They are saying Jesus has a demon. The one who's pure so holy, so righteous that the angels consistently say, holy, 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 holy are you. They're attaching his life to the demonic. The Father sent the Son. The Father affirms the Son. The Father wants the world to see the glory of Jesus. The Son didn't come. Watch the beauty of this. He didn't come to make, to make everybody seek His glory, though He deserves everybody's glory. He came to honor the Father and to submit in humility to the Father in every kind of way. And the world rejected. The religious leaders are rejecting And then Jesus says this, I've got the authority to establish truth, and this is the truth I want to tell you. If you will keep my word, you will never see death. You'll never see death. And again, watch this. This is another loving invitation as Jesus speaks the truth to hard-hearted people. Rather than just wiping them off the earth in their mockery, His loving patience is alive in their midst. And this gracious invitation is extended to those accusing him of being a demon. I want to take us back in our minds to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Listen to this. Do not overlook this one fact, Peter writes, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And the Lord, He's not slow to fulfill His promise, as some people count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The mocking of Christ of the religious leaders is astounding. His patience in their midst 
is even more astounding. Extending to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you will, if you believe my words, you will never see death. But you've got to keep my word. You've got to keep the word that I've been telling you. But your problem is you can't bear my word. That's your issue. You don't like what I've been saying. You don't like who I am. But if you'll keep my word, then you will know life. Let me tell you what this phrase, never see death, means. We know that two people, there's only been two people to never die. They both have E names from the Old Testament. Enoch, and who's the other one? Elijah. So two people we know throughout history did not die, Enoch and Elijah. So obviously, Jesus is not talking about that if we keep his word, we will not physically die since there's only two exceptions. As a matter of fact, Jesus died. Okay? So what's his point? What's he telling them? What are they missing? What's interesting, the Greek word here for he will never see death is a word that means to fix on or to gaze at. doesn't mean to just glance at something. It means to fix your gaze and to look and to stare. Now, in this context, what does this mean? He who keeps my word, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. This is what it means. Those who are in Jesus, those who come to faith in Jesus, will never, ever have to fix on their eyes or gaze on the second death, the judgment, eternal separation from God in Christ. Think about that for a moment. At 17, I, I, I believed. God opened my eyes and I believed. And, so when, and I believed this word that Christ didn't understand it all, but I believed it. And my salvation was secure in that moment. If you are a believer in this room this morning and salvation has come to your life, Here's what Jesus is saying. Because you have believed what I said about who I am and about who the Father is, and your salvation is secure in me, you're sealed by the Holy Spirit, you will never have to look at, gaze at, the second death. That's the, everybody physically is going to die. Everybody's going to have to look at the first death. Everybody but Enoch and Elijah. But those who are in Christ will not look at the second judgment, the second death. That's the second death, the separation. And so that's what Christ, and so even in their anger and their confusion, Jesus is extending grace to these people. They are also part of the mission field, confused people. So Jesus, again, gives evidence that He's holy God. He's not demonic. The Father seeks His glory And the rejection means the Father is going to judge. But if we keep His Word and believe what Jesus says about salvation, we will not have to fix our gaze and look at the second death. Now Jesus gives us another layer here. Let's look at the fourth thing. 52 through 54. So the Jews said to Him, Now we know, okay, okay, yeah, I know we said you have a demon. We're convinced now. You've given the proof. Proof, proof, we've got it. Now we know that you have a demon. Um, And here's how we know. Abraham died. As did all the prophets. 
And yet you say, if anybody keeps your word, you've been born in our generation. They're from a long time ago. They will never taste death. Hello, hello, Abraham died. Hello, Jeremiah died. Isaiah died. Malachi died. All the prophets, they died. Moses died. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets who died, who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. So his previous words of, you will not see death, set them off, and they convince him, he is of the great enemy, Satan. He's possessed by demons. Now I want you to notice 51 and 52. They twist his words. This is what liars do. In 51, he says, you will never see death. What do they say in 52? They twist his words. Taste death. They twist it. This is what Satan did in the garden. This is what false teachers have been doing for 2,000 years. It's not what Jesus said. Everybody tastes physical death. Did you hear that? Everybody tastes physical death. Jesus was talking about a spiritual death. If you will abide in my words and obey my words and trust in my words, you will never see the second death. So what Jesus said here is not the tasting, it was the the seeing and Jesus would die on the cross but again I'll just say that this is what liars do they twist the truth and they see themselves as belonging to God possessed by God as his chosen people but Jesus is demon possessed and therefore must be rejected by God they are blind to the truth seeing Jesus just in a purely physical and not in a spiritual perspective it's not surprising that they cannot accept these words he has said in 37 and 43 my word finds no place in you and you cannot bear my word and so Jesus goes back to the same argument he's been making who backs him who gives evidence to who his glory is the father and so look at 54 So Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, if I'm about glorifying myself, then my glory is nothing. But you need to know this, man. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. So notice how he deals with them. He goes back to the real issue, not the fringe issue. He goes back to the heart. The Father has sent me. The Father glorifies me. The Father wants my glory to be honored. So listen to the power of these significant words of Christ. I'm not here building myself. He could have been. I mean, gosh, this is the one the angels glorified. But he came here in this great humility and said, I'm not here about myself. I'm here to honor My father, my father's about my honor. But it is the father, he says here, 
who glorifies who I am. The Father gives this great energy to glorifying me. So Jesus' big point here is that we cannot miss. The Father seeks the glory of the Son to be known. And the Father is active in glorifying and seeing that Jesus is glorified. He makes much of who I am. And if the Father glorifies the Son and the Son is rejected, then those who reject Jesus are rejecting the very will of the Father. And if the Son and when the Son is rejected, then those who reject the Son can't claim to know God. They can't claim it. And I tell you, skeptics, again, are experts on the side issues to try and undermine, but we are to be well-versed in knowing the truth so that we can speak. And we can only know the nature of God and the power of the Word of God by knowing His Word. Look at 55 now. He goes back to the argument. You guys are claiming to know God, but you have not known Him. But I know Him. And if I were to say that I do not know Him, then I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His Word. So he's making the same case again. There's a glory of Christ connected in knowing the Father and keeping His Word. So he tells them, listen, you've not known Him, but I've been telling you I know Him. You say you do. But if I were to say that I don't know Him, then I could be moved over into your camp. You could, you could call me a liar, but I do know Him. So I can't be called a liar, and I've been telling you who He is. These are strong words to people who have been told that they have been lying about knowing God. And so Jesus, He can say this, I have kept my Father's words perfectly. I have kept my Father's will perfectly I know the Father better than anyone. And if I, if I agreed with you that I don't know God, then I would be exactly like you. I would be a liar. Because I, would actually, because I actually do know Him. And for me to say that I don't know Him would make me a liar. And so he says there, I know Him. And what is Jesus' great passion was? I keep His word. I keep His word. All right, just a couple more things. Look at 56 and 57. Jesus has the longing of Abraham. So Jesus comes back to this. Your father Abraham that you cling to, he rejoiced that he would see my day. And he actually saw it and was glad And so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you're claiming to say that you've seen Abraham? So let's talk about this for a moment. This is clearly another example of how they were not like Abraham that they were claiming claiming to be. Abraham rejoiced over the fact that he would see the day of Jesus. He rejoiced. Abraham rejoiced. Worship celebrated. Yes, one is coming to rescue us. The one promised in Genesis 
3, He's coming. And He's going to come from my line by the promise. And Abraham worshipped and rejoiced over this. Jesus was the longing of Abraham. And they should have known that Jesus' point here was that Abraham would have rejoiced to see the one who was the promise that God had given them. And he was glad about the coming of Christ. Let me give three brief things here. Look at this. He rejoiced in the coming of Christ. We know from Hebrews chapter 11, talks about the Old Testament saints that they, they by faith believed in the one who was coming. How did they see it? They didn't see it like I see you before me and you see me before you. They saw it by faith. They didn't see it physically. They believed what God said. They trusted in the promise. And by doing so, though they couldn't have said, oh, he's this tall or, or this, they, they knew this, that this was true. God had spoken and it was going to come true. And so Abraham rejoiced in the coming of Christ. That, and that's where his faith rested. Not in his works, but in the promise. Secondly, through faith he saw it. How or when could Abraham have seen this more clearly? Let me give you three brief examples. So when God came to him in Genesis 12 and also in Genesis 17 and said the nations would be blessed from Abraham's life, that revelation of God that I think we have in Scripture, God just didn't speak to him two sentences, by the way. They talked. And there was probably a greater revelation to Abraham in those moments about this promise that he understood things. There was another encounter in Genesis 14 where Abraham meets Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God. And it was here where God could have in this encounter told Abraham more about a future priest like Melchizedek who would come. And this priest would lay his life down and he would be the one to open up the door. And so probably from that encounter, Abraham knew more. And then I think he really knew more in Genesis chapter 22, where he takes Isaac up on the mountain, and he believes, listen to this, he believes God's word and God's nature so much that he's going to take a knife and ram it through the son of the promise. And God says, wait, 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 don't. And God provided another sacrifice that day. And we read Genesis chapter 22 and just think, that probably was all that was there. But I imagine there was more communicated. And so I think Abraham looked down and he believed what God had told him. There's one, there's a son who's going to come. And he will be the sacrifice. He will be the one. And so Abraham, by faith, was, he, he longed for Jesus. And he believed it. And he rejoiced at his coming. Through faith he saw it. And then thirdly, it says, Jesus says there, and he was glad. Christ coming made the heart of Abraham glad. And then they say to him, are you kidding me? <laughs> You're not even 50 years old. Why did they go to the age of 50? Well, the priest, Levite priest, retired at age 50. And so likely they were saying, look, we've not retired. We've not reached the age of retirement. You definitely have not reached the age of retirement. So how in the world can you say that you have seen Abraham? Well, 
how in the world could somebody who's 32 years old see Abraham? He could see Abraham because he is the great I am. He wasn't born 32 years earlier. He was pre-existent, self-existent. And so he is preeminent in all things. So in 58 it says this, Jesus said to them, well, here's the thing. Let me establish another truth before you. Notice the verbs. Before Abraham was, past tense, I am present tense. I am. I exist. I have always existed. What is he doing here? He's making a God claim. I am eternal in nature. It's the same name that is used in Exodus chapter 3. Before Abraham was, Jesus is continually in existence already. He is preeminent in all things. Spurgeon once wrote, Nothing teaches us about the preciousness of the Creator as much as when we learn the emptiness of everything else. And I think that's true. He is preeminent in all things. And we'll stop here. They've had enough. His word has no place in them. They've mocked his glory. They've called him demon-possessed. They've called him a Samaritan. They've rejected everything that he said. And so they pick up stones to throw at God. Not to just throw at him, but to kill him. And so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and he went out of the temple. A natural question can come out of John chapter 8. Why did he have to be so hard on them? Did he have to tell them that their father's the devil? Did he have to call them a bunch of liars? Two things I would respond to that. One is broken people, you know what they know? They need help. You know what arrogant, religious, prideful people think? They don't need any help. And so you deal with the two groups of people differently. People who are lost and broken, they know that they don't have it together and they need someone outside of themselves to bring the healing. And so there is sometimes a different approach. And so Jesus takes that. By the way, he's been battling them for almost three years now. And it's gotten worse. And so with one last final extension of grace and mercy to them, he exposes their lostness in a strong way and he gives them another opportunity to see who he is. And they don't want to have anything to do with him. They desire to kill him right on the spot. And it reveals that they would rather remain in their sin than ever consider that what Christ was saying was actually true. And I tell you, mockers and blasphemers all die in their sin. Every one of them will. But sometimes God comes along with a mocker and a persecutor and he just does something beautiful. The Apostle Paul was heading up a highway one day and Jesus said, no, I'm going to change your life. And he knocked him from the horse that he was riding and he blinded him. And the Apostle Paul became this incredible missionary. He was a mocker and a blasphemer. Then there are people like Herod in Acts chapter 12 
when Herod spoke, people that day said, Oh, the voice of a God! And Herod's like, Yep. And God sent angels and struck him down right there, and worms ate him. Don't think that he will not do that today. And then there's those who are mockers and blasphemers that Paul dealt with. Two guys by the name of Hymenaeus and Alexander. And so in 1 Timothy, Paul writes these words, verse 19 in chapter 1. Holding faith in a good conscience by rejecting these, some have made shipwreck of their faith. They've crashed on the the shores. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander. And listen to what Paul says. Whom I have handed over to Satan that they would be taught not to blaspheme Jesus. So those are just three examples. And we could take a look at more to indicate that God takes the mocking of Jesus serious. Challenging the Lord and King of the universe by mocking Him, in my opinion, is a very unwise choice. But I think there's one more mocking that is present today. And it's this one that sometimes we don't get so up in arms about that may be even more concerning. And it's this one. Those who willfully hear the truth and live their lives aware of the truth and the consequences of heaven and hell and just choose to ignore it. Just go on their way. They're basically practical, aware agnostics in a sense. They have a knowledge of things concerning Jesus, and yet they live willfully rejecting the offer of life. So is that really true today? Do people live that way today? Let me close with this story. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to them, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, There was a man who once gave a great banquet, and he invited many people to the banquet. And at the time of the banquet, everything had been made ready. He sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, everybody, everything's ready. The master's got everything ready to eat. And the first one said, listen to the choices. The first one said, oh, well, I've bought a field, and I need to go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, well, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I need to go examine them. Please have me excused. By the way, bad business practices to buy a field and oxen that you haven't checked out. These are just trivial excuses mocking the host who's invited them to the banquet. Another one said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Don't let a man or a woman keep you from the banquet. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, by the way, did you hear that? 
God gets to get angry about people who reject the offer of salvation. Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, serve. We've been about that work. That's what we've been doing. What you've commanded has been done. And still there's room. And the master said to the servant, well then go out to the highways and the hedges. And listen to these words. And compel people to come in. That my house may be filled. For I tell you, none, not a single one of those men who were invited will taste my banquet. These type of people are the ones who are aware of the invitation and yet choose to ignore the offer and just live their lives as if everything else is more important than coming to know Christ and salvation. Everyone in the parable dishonored the gracious host and missed out on life. And they've got rocks in their hands wanting to throw at the Son of God and we should not be surprised by it. Church, do you hear that? We can't be surprised and should not be surprised that the world doesn't applaud our faith. Jesus said, if they hated me, if they hate you, guess what? They hated me first. If they dishonored me, here's what they're going to do. They're going to dishonor you. And some of the most sad words in the Gospels are here. But Jesus hid himself from them and went out of the temple. It wasn't the right time for Jesus to die, so he slips away. But secondly, what a sad and tragic picture that Jesus has to get away from you because the timing wasn't right. It's of the utmost tragedy for Jesus to hide himself and leave someone in their sin after so many tender offers to come to faith in him. And in the end, no matter how close they actually were by being his people, believing in Christ, the Jews having God's laws, they chose to have a religion and to reject Christ. That's what they chose. So that's how John 8 ends. It's an intense chapter, is it not? Just really intense chapter. It's heavy. But the glory of the kingdom is going to be seen next week when a man who can't see sees and then he spiritually sees. And that's what the glory of Christ does. Let's pray.